Chapter 73 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 73. Signor Pistola, to whom we can give no other name than that bestowed on him by Consuelo, for we are not sufficiently interested in him to institute any inquiries as to his real one, had seen from his place of concealment the carriage stop at the cries of the fugitives. The silent one, to use the cognomen given him also by Consuelo, had made a similar observation from the hill. He forthwith ran to rejoin Mayer, and both consulted on the means of saving themselves. Before the baron had crossed the stream, Pistola had gained the road and concealed himself in the wood. He allowed them to cross, and then fired both his pistols, one ball of which pierced the baron's hat, while the other slightly wounded his attendant's horse. The baron turned sharply round, saw him, and riding up, stretched him on the earth with a pistol bullet. He then left him kicking and swearing among the brambles, and followed Joseph, who reached the carriage of Hermaire almost at the same moment as the Count. The latter had already sprung out. Mayer and the silent one had disappeared with the horse, without taking time to conceal the carriage. The first care of the victors was to force the lock of the recess, where the prisoner was confined. Consuelo joyfully assisted to cut the bonds of this unfortunate man, who no sooner found himself at liberty than he threw himself prostrate on the ground before his liberators. Thanking God, but the moment he beheld the baron, it seemed as if he had fallen from Charibidus into Scylla. Ah, your excellency, Baron Tranky exclaimed, do not destroy me, do not give me up. Mercy for a poor deserter, the father of a family. I am no more a Prussian than you are, sir. I am like yourself an Austrian subject, and I beg of you not to have me arrested. Oh, show mercy. Oh, pardon him, your highness, exclaimed Consuelo without knowing to whom she spoke, nor what it was about. I pardon you, replied the baron, but on one condition, that you engage by the most solemn oaths never to tell who gave you life and liberty. Thus saying, the baron tied a handkerchief over his own face, leaving only one eye exposed. Are you wounded? asked the count. No, he replied, pulling his hat over his brows. But if we meet these pretended robbers, I do not wish to be recognized. I do not stand very well already in my sovereign's graces, and there only need such an affair as this to finish me. I understand, replied the Count, but do not fear. I will take all the responsibility upon myself. That may save this deserter from stripes and the gallows, but will not ward off disgrace from me. But whatever comes of it, one should serve one's fellow creatures at every risk. Let us see, my poor fellow, 
Can you stand up? Not well, I fancy. Are you wounded? I have received some hard blows, but I do not feel them now. Have you strength sufficient to fly? Oh, yes, Mr. Aide-de-Camp. Do not call me by that name, you scoundrel. Be off, and Count, let us do the same. I long to get out of these woods. I have given one of these fellows his quietus. If the king knew it, I should be a gone man. But, after all, I care not a jot for his anger, he added, shrugging his shoulders. Alas, said Consuelo, while Joseph gave the sufferer a drink. If we leave him here, he will soon be seized again. His feet are swollen, and he can hardly lift his hands. See how pale he is. Do not let us forsake him, said the Count, whose eyes were fixed on Consuelo. Franz, get down, said he to his servant, and then turning to the deserter, he added, Mount this horse, I give him to you, and this also, tossing him his purse. Will you be able to reach Austria? Oh, yes, my lord. Do you wish to go to Vienna? Yes, my lord. Are you willing to serve again? Yes, my lord, except in the Prussian army. Go then and seek her majesty, the empress queen. She grants audiences to all who wish it once a week. Tell her that Count Hoditz presents her with a handsome grenadier drilled in the Prussian fashion. I hasten, my lord, and never mention the baron's name, or I will get you seized and sent to Prussia. I would rather die at once. Oh, if the rascals had only left me the use of my hands, I would have killed myself rather than be taken. Be off. Yes, my lord. He took another drink of the contents of the gourd, returned the vessel to Joseph, thanked him without being aware of the far more important service he owed him, and, prostrating himself before the count and the impatient baron, he crossed himself, kissed the ground, and mounted with the help of the servants, but he was totally unable to set his feet to the ground. But scarcely was he in the saddle then, regaining vigor and courage, he put spurs to his horse, and darted off toward the south like the wind. If they ever find out what I have done, said the baron, my destruction is certain. No matter, added he, bursting into a fit of laughter, it is a rare idea to present Maria Theresa with one of Frederick's grenadiers. This fellow, whose balls have whistled by the soldiers of the empress, will now return the compliment to those of the king of Prussia most faithful subjects and well-selected troops. The sovereigns are none the worse served for that. And now, what are we going to do with these young creatures? We may say, like the grenadier, replied Consuelo, that if you forsake us, we are lost. Methinks, replied the Count, who affected a chivalrous style in all his sayings and doings, you have had little reason hitherto to doubt our humanity. We will bring you where you will be free from all danger. My servant will mount the box. Then, addressing the baron, he added in a low voice, Would you not prefer these young people inside to a valet, before whom we would be obliged to practice more reserve? 
without any doubt, replied the baron. Artists, however poor, are fit society for anyone. Who knows if in yonder lad we have not picked up a tartini in embryo? Look with what rapture he seizes on his fiddle again. Come, troubadour, said he to Joseph, who had just succeeded in regaining possession of his bag, his violin, and his music. Come with us. You shall sing this glorious combat in which we could find nobody to kill. You may jest at my expense as much as you please, replied the Count, reclining at the back of the carriage, the young people being seated in front, as they rapidly rolled along toward Austria. You have brought down one gallows bird at any rate. Perhaps he is not killed outright, and may some day or other meet me at King Frederick's door. I will give you the honor of the exploit, therefore, with all my heart. As for me, who never even saw the enemy, replied the Count, I quite envy you. I was in, however, for the adventure, and could have been glad to punish these fellows, as they deserve. To seize deserters and carry off recruits on the very borders of Bavaria, the faithful ally of Maria Theresa. It is insolence beyond all bounds. It would be an excellent pretext for going to war if they were not both tired fighting, and if peace at this moment were not much more convenient. I shall therefore feel thankful, Sir Count, if you will be silent on the subject of this adventure, as well on account of my sovereign as on the score of my mission to your empress. I should find her but ill-disposed to receive me after such an impertinent demonstration on the part of my government. Fear nothing, replied the Count. You know that I am not a zealous subject, because I am not an ambitious courtier. And what scope for ambition could you have, dear Count, crowned as you are at once by love and fortune? Whereas I, ah, how unlike are our respective destinies, analogous as they may at first sight seem. Thus saying, the baron drew from his bosom a portrait set in diamonds, and began to gaze at it with moistened eyes and deep-drawn sighs. Consuela felt very much inclined to laugh. She thought so open a display of attachment was not in the best taste, and inwardly ridiculed the person who could be guilty of it. Dear Baron, replied the Count, lowering his voice, while Consuelo did her utmost not to hear him, I entreat you to make no one your confidant but myself, nor ever to display this portrait again. Put it back in its case, and reflect that this child knows French as well as you or I do. By the way, said the Baron, putting back his portrait, which Consuelo took care not to glance at, what the devil were they going to do with these little fellows? What did they say to induce you to follow them? I never thought of that, said the Count, nor can I even now understand what they, who seek only to enlist giants, wish to do with a couple of children. Joseph related that Mayer represented himself as a musician and talked continually about Dresden and an engagement in the electoral chapel. Now I have it, replied the baron, and this mayor, I wager I know him. It must be one N, Promily a drum major, 
and now recruiting for the Prussian regimental bands. Our people have no ear or taste, and his majesty, who even excels his father in the justness of his musical perceptions, is obliged to procure his trumpeters and fifers from Bohemia and Hungary. The professor of Rubadub thought to secure in those little musicians a fine present for his master, in addition to the deserter, and it was not a bad idea to promise Dresden and the court to these intelligent young performers. But you would never have seen Dresden, my children, and, with your leave or without your leave, a regiment of infantry would have been your destination for the rest of your days. Now I know what to think of the fate which awaited us, replied Consuelo. I have heard of the abominations of this dull, heavy regime, and of their bad faith and cruelty toward recruits. I see from the way they treated the poor grenadier what was in store for us. Oh, the great Frederick. No, my young friend, said the baron, somewhat ironically, that his majesty is ignorant of the means, he is only aware of the results. Of which he unconcernedly takes advantage, replied Consuelo, with irrepressible indignation. Oh, my lord baron, kings are never wrong, and are ignorant of all the evil which is practiced to gratify them. The rogue is witty, exclaimed the count, smiling. But be prudent, my pretty drummer, and do not forget that you speak before the commander of the regiment in which you were perhaps about to enter. Knowing how to be silent myself, Signor Count, I never doubt the discretion of others. You hear, Baron, he promises the silence which was not even asked of him. Come, he is a fine fellow. I confide in him with all my heart. Count, you must enroll him and offer him as page to her highness. I agree, said the Count, smiling, if he consent to the arrangement. Will you accept this arrangement, my child? You will find it much more agreeable than the Prussian service. You will neither have to blow a trumpet, nor to call the reveille before break of day, nor eat powdered brick in place of bread, but simply to bear the train and carry the fan of a gracious lady, live in a fairy palace, preside at sports, and take your part in concerts, quite as good as those of the great Frederick. Are you tempted? You did not take me for another mayor. And who is this highness, so gracious and magnificent as Consuelo, smiling? It is the Dowager Margravine, a Barith, Princess of Kalmbach, and my illustrious spouse, replied Count Hoditz, who is now residing at her ancestral castle of Roswald in Moravia. Consuelo had often heard the canonists relate the history and alliances of all the aristocracy, great and small, of Germany, and among others that of Count Hoditz Rosewald, a rich Moravian nobleman, banished by his father, justly irritated at his conduct, an adventurer in all the courts of Europe, and latterly grand equerry and lover of the Dowager Margravine of Bereith whom he had secretly married, carried off, and conducted to Vienna, and thence to Moravia, where, having received his paternal inheritance, 
he had placed her at the head of a brilliant establishment. The canoness had often recurred to this history, at which she was excessively shocked, because the Margravine was a reigning princess and the Count a simple nobleman, and she therefore made it her continual text for inveighing against all misalliances and love matches. Consuelo, on her part, was well pleased to make herself acquainted with aristocratic prejudices, and did not forget these revelations. The first time the name of Count Hoditz was mentioned before her, she had been struck by a sort of vague recollection, but now she remembered clearly all the particulars of the life and romantic marriage of this celebrated adventurer. As to Baron Trenck, who was then at the outset of his remarkable career, and who little foresaw his frightful downfall, she had never heard of him. The Count now proceeded to dilate with some degree of vanity on his recent opulence. Ridiculed and looked down upon by the little courts of Germany, Hoditz had long blushed to be regarded as a poor wretch enriched by his wife. But having succeeded to vast possessions, he maintained from thenceforth regal state in his Moravian domain, and displayed his titles and his consequence before the eyes of petty princes, much poorer than himself. Delicately attentive to the Margravine, he thought himself no otherwise bound to a woman so much older than himself, and whether she shut her eyes through complacence or good taste, or believed that her husband could never be sensible of the decline of her beauty, she never ventured to thwart his fancies. After proceeding a few leagues, the noble travelers found a fresh relay of horses ready harnessed for them. Joseph and Consuela would have here taken leave of their friends, but they kindly dissuaded them, alleging the possibility of new enterprises on the part of the recruiters who were spread everywhere over the country. You do not know, said Trenck, how skillful and how much to be feared this race of men are. In whatever part of Europe you may happen to set foot, if you are poor and in difficulties and are possessed of any talent, you are exposed to their machinations or violence. They know all the passages of the frontiers, all the mountain paths, every place of ill fame, and all the rascals from whom they may expect assistance or support in case of need. They speak all languages, all dialects, for they have traveled in every country, and have practiced every profession and trade. They can manage a horse to perfection, run, jump, swim, dive, cross valleys and precipices like regular banditti. They are almost all brave, inured to fatigue, liars, dexterous, supple, subtle, cruel. It is from the refuse of the human race that the administration of his late majesty, the great William, has selected the able purveyors of his forces and the props of his military discipline. They would lay hold of a deserter were he in the depths of Siberia and would seek him in the midst of the enemy's balls for the sole pleasure of bringing him back to Prussia and hanging him for an example to others. They have before now torn a priest from the altar because he was six feet high. They stole a physician from the electoral princess. 
they have ten times reduced the old Margrave of Barith to a state of despair by running off with his army of twenty men without his daring to seek redress openly. They made a soldier of a French gentleman who went to see his wife and children in the neighborhood of Strasbourg. They have taken Russians from the Tsarina Elizabeth, Hulons from Marshal Saxe, Pandors from Maria Theresa, Hungarian magnates, Polish noblemen, Italian singers, women of all nations, Sabines married by force to their soldiers. Nothing comes amiss to them, and besides all the cost and charges of their journeys, they have so much ahead, what do I say? So much an inch, so much a line. Yes, said Consuelo, they furnish human flesh by the pound. Ah, your great king is nothing but an ogre. But do not be uneasy, Senor Baron. You have done a great deed in restoring liberty to the poor deserter. I would rather undergo all the punishments that were designed for him than utter a word to your prejudice. Trank, whose fiery character had little regard for prudence, and whose mind was already embittered by the singular severity and incomprehensible injustice of Frederick toward him, experienced a savage satisfaction in revealing to Count Hoditz the misdeeds of a system, of which he had been the witness and the accomplice in prosperous times, when his reflections had not always been so equitable and so severe. Now secretly persecuted, though apparently confided in so far as to be entrusted with an important diplomatic mission to the court of Maria Theresa. He began to hate his master and to display his sentiments much too openly. He related to the Count the slavery, the sufferings and the despair of this numerous Prussian army, precious in war but dangerous in peace and whose power was matured by unexampled severity. He then mentioned the suicidal epidemic which had spread in the army, and the crimes which soldiers, otherwise honest and devout, had committed in order to be condemned to death, and thus escape from the dreadful life they led. You may suppose, said he, that the ranks under inspection are those which are most sought after. You must know that these are composed of foreign recruits, men carried off by force, and young Prussians utterly disgusted and wearied with a military career in which they are doomed to end their days. They are divided into ranks in which they are forced to march, whether in peace or war, before a line of men more submissive and determined to whom orders are given to fire on those before them if the latter display the least appearance of flying or resisting. If the ranks charged with this duty neglect it, those placed still further back, who are among the most insensible and ferocious of the hardened and rascally veterans of the army, are bound to fire on the two first, and so on, if the third flinch in their duty. Thus every rank in battle has the enemy before his face, and the enemy behind his back. Friends, brethren, fellow creatures, nowhere. Nothing save violence, death, and terror. Thus does the great Frederick form his invincible soldiers. Well, 
a place among these first ranks, is envied and sought after by the Prussian soldier, and as soon as he obtains it, he throws down his arms without the least hope of safety in order to draw on him the balls of his comrades. This despair saves many, who, venturing all on the die and braving unheard of dangers, succeed in escaping to the enemy. The king is not unaware of the horror which his iron yoke inspires, and you probably know his remark to his nephew, the Duke of Brunswick, who was present at one of his grand reviews, and could not help admiring the fine appearance and superb maneuvers of the troops. An assemblage of so many handsome fellows surprises you, said Frederick. Well, there is one thing that surprises me still more. What is that, said the young duke? It is how it happens that you and I are safe in the midst of them, replied the king. Dear Baron, exclaimed Count Hauditz, that is the reverse of the medal. Nothing can be accomplished with men except by natural means. How could Frederick become the first captain of his time if he were as mild as a dove? Hold, say no more. You will force me, his natural enemy, to take his part against you, his aide-de-camp and favorite. From the capricious manner in which he treats his favorites, one may judge how he acts with his slaves. Let us speak no more of him. You are right, because when I think of it, I am seized with a diabolical desire to return to the woods and strangle, with my own hands, his zealous purveyors of human flesh, whom I have through a stupid and cowardly prudence allowed to escape. The generous enthusiasm of the baron pleased Consuelo. She listened with interest to his animated pictures of military life in Prussia and not being aware that personal malice mingled somewhat with his courageous indignation, she only saw in it the evidence of a noble character. There was, nevertheless, real greatness in the soul of Trank. This proud and handsome young man was not born to creep. There was a great difference in this respect between him and his impromptu traveling friend, Count Hoditz. The latter having been, during infancy, the terror and despair of his preceptors, had been left to himself, and although he had passed the age of sowing his wild oats, there was something boyish in his manners and demeanor, which contrasted strangely with his Herculean stature and handsome features, somewhat worn indeed by forty years of dissipation and excess. His superficial information which he sometimes displayed, was picked up in romances, popular philosophy, and the theater. He pretended to be an artist, though he was as deficient in discernment and depth in that as in everything else. Nevertheless, his grand air and his exquisite condescension soon impressed the young Hayden, who preferred him to the baron perhaps on account of the preference which Consuelo displayed for the latter. The baron, on the contrary, was well informed, and if the atmosphere of courts and the effervescence of youth had sometimes led him astray, he had nevertheless preserved those independent sentiments and just and noble principles which are developed by a good education, followed by serious study. 
His lofty character may indeed have been impaired by the caresses and flatteries of power, but his ardent and impetuous temperament had never stooped so low, but that on the least injustice it bounded up fiery and brilliant as ever. Frederick's handsome page had tasted of the poison cup, but love, however rash, had animated and exalted his courage and his perseverance. Pierced to the heart, he had not the less raised his head and braved to his face the tyrant who would have humbled him. At the period of our story, he appeared to be about five and twenty years of age. His dark brown hair, which he would not sacrifice to the childish discipline of Frederick, clustered in thick curls around his lofty brow. His figure was superb, his eyes sparkling, his mustachios black as jet, his hand white as alabaster, although of Herculean strength, and his voice fresh and masculine, as were his countenance, his ideas, and the hopes of his love. Consuelo reflected upon this mysterious attachment, which he had every moment on his lips, and which she no longer thought absurd when she observed by degrees, in his outbursts and in his reserve, the mixture of natural impetuosity and well-founded distrust which made him continually at war with his destiny and with himself. She experienced, in spite of herself, a lively desire to know the queen of this fine young man's affections, and offered deep and romantic vows for the happiness of the lovers. She did not find the journey in the least tedious, though she expected it would prove so face to face with two strangers of a rank so different from her own. She had contracted at Venice the idea, and at Riesenberg the habits of refined life, those polite and quiet manners, and those choice expressions which constituted the better part of what was then called good society. Keeping herself in the background, and not speaking unless when spoken to, she felt herself much at her ease, as she reflected on all she heard. Neither the Count nor Baron appeared to have seen through her disguise, and, as for the latter, he paid no attention either to her or Joseph. If he occasionally addressed them, it was while speaking to the Count, and being carried away by the subject he at last was conscious of nothing but his own thoughts. As to the Count, he was by turns grave as a monarch and gay as a French marchioness. He drew his tablets from his pocket and took notes with the serious air of a philosopher or a diplomatist. Then he read them over in a humming voice, and Consuelo saw that they were little verses, written in a gallant and pleasing French. Sometimes he recited them to the baron, who declared them admirable without having listened to them. Sometimes he consulted Consuelo with a good-natured air, and asked her with false modesty, What do you think of that, my little friend? You understand French, do you not? Consuelo, impatient of this pretended condescension, which appeared to seek to dazzle her, could not resist the temptation of mentioning two or three faults which he found in a quatrain to beauty. Her mother had taught her to pronounce and enunciate well those languages which she herself sang easily and with a certain elegance, 
and Consuelo, studious, and seeking in all things harmony, measure, and the neatness which her musical organization rendered easy to her, had found in books the key and rules of these various languages. She had examined prosody especially with care, exercising herself in translating lyric poetry and in adjusting foreign words to national airs in order to become mistress of the rhythm and accent. She had also succeeded in comprehending the rules of versification in several languages, and it was not difficult for her to detect the errors of the Moravian poet. Astonished at her learning, but not able to resolve upon doubting his own, Hoditz consulted the baron, who confidently gave judgment in favor of the little musician. From this moment the count occupied himself exclusively with her, but without appearing to suspect her real age or sex. He only asked where he had been educated, that he knew the laws of Parnassus so well. At the charity school of the Singing Academy at Venice, replied she, laconically, it would appear that the studies of that country are more severe than those of Germany. And your comrade, where did he study? At the Cathedral of Vienna, replied Joseph. My children, resumed the Count, you have both much intelligence and quickness. At our first resting place, I wish to examine you upon music, and if your proficiency corresponds with the promise given by your faces and manners, I will engage you for the orchestra of my theater at Rosewald. I wish, at any rate, to present you to the princess, my spouse. What do you say? Ha, ah, it would be a fortune for children like you. Consuelo had been seized with a strong desire to laugh on hearing the Count propose to examine Hayden and herself in music, and she could only make a respectful inclination, while she used all her efforts to preserve a serious countenance. Joseph, feeling more forcibly the advantageous consequences of a new protection for himself, thanked him and did not refuse. The Count resumed, his tablets, and read to Consuelo half of a little Italian opera, singularly detestable and full of barbarisms, which he intended to set to music himself, and to have represented on his wife's fete day by the actors of the theater belonging to his chateau, or rather his residence, for, considering himself a prince in the right of his margravine, he never used any other phrase." Consuelo pushed Joseph's elbow from time to time to make him remark the Count's blunders, and overcome by ennui, thought to herself that to be seduced by such madrigals, the famous beauty of the hereditary margraviate of Barith, with the appanage of Combach, must be a very stupid person, notwithstanding her titles, her beauty, and her years. While reading and declaiming, the Count kept crunching little comfits to moisten his throat, and incessantly offered them to the young travelers, who, having eaten nothing since the day before, and dying of hunger, accepted, for want of a better, this element, fitted rather to deceive than to satisfy their appetite, saying to themselves that the Count's sugar-plums and his rhymes were very insipid nourishment. Toward evening, the spires and clock towers of the city of Passau, 
which Consuelo in the morning thought she would never reach, were visible. This prospect, after so many dangers and disquietudes, was almost as delightful to her as that of Venice had formerly been. And when she had crossed the Danube, she could not help grasping Joseph's hand with pleasure. "'Is he your brother?' said the Count. "'Yes, my lord,' replied Consuelo, answering at random in order to rid herself of his curiosity. "'Yet you are not in the least like each other,' said the Count. "'Oh, there are many children who do not resemble their father,' said Joseph gaily. "'But you are not brought up together.' "'No, my lord. In our unsettled profession we are educated how and where we can.' "'Yet I cannot help thinking,' said the Count to Consuelo, lowering his voice, "'that you are of gentle birth. Everything in your manner bespeaks a natural elevation.' "'I do not know how I was born,' she answered, laughing. "'I must be descended from a long line of musicians, since I love nothing on earth but music.' "'Why are you in the dress of a Moravian present? "'Because, my clothes being worn out, "'I purchased this suit in one of the fairs. "'You have been in Moravia, then? "'At Roswald, perhaps?' "'I have seen it at a distance,' replied Consuelo, "'slyly, but without daring to approach your proud domain. "'Your statues, your cascades, your gardens, your mountains, your fairy palace.' "'You saw it all, then?' exclaimed the Count, astonished, "'forgetting that Consuelo had heard him describe the beauties of his residence in detail for the last two hours. "'Oh, you would be delighted to see it again, I assure you. "'I am dying to see it once more, since I have had the pleasure of knowing you,' said Consuelo, "'who felt an irresistible desire to revenge herself for the infliction of his opera.' She bounded lightly from the bark in which they had crossed the river, exclaiming in a German accent, I salute thee, O Passau. The barouche conducted them to the dwelling of a rich nobleman, a friend of the Count's, then absent, but whose house was placed at his disposal. The household was expecting them, and supper being ready, it was immediately served up. The Count who was delighted at the conversation of his little musician, but so he called Consuelo, would have wished to invite them to the table, but the fear of annoying the baron by this breach of etiquette prevented him. Consuelo and Joseph were well satisfied to sup in the servants' hall, and made no objection to sit down along with the valets. Hayden, indeed, had never held a higher place in the fetes of the nobility to which he had been invited, and although a sense of the dignity of his art gave him sufficient elevation of character to understand the outrage inflicted on him, he recollected, without any feeling of shame, that his mother had been cooked to Count Harrick, the lord of his village. In fact, at a later period, when arrived at the very zenith of his genius, Hayden was no better appreciated by his patrons as a man Although his fame as an artist was spread all over Europe, he lived for five and twenty years in the service of Prince Esterhazy. And when we say service, we do not mean merely as a musician. For Pierre saw him, a napkin on his arm and a sword by his side, standing behind his master's chair 
and performing the duties of major domo or principal domestic. Consuelo had not eaten a meal in company with domestics since her travels in childhood with her mother, the Zagara. She was greatly amused, therefore, with the borrowed airs and graces of these aristocratic lackeys, who felt aggrieved at the company of two wandering musicians, and who did not hesitate to thrust them to the foot of the table and help them to the worst morsels, which, however, thanks to their youth and good appetite, they did not the less enjoy, their contented air having disarmed their haughty entertainers. The latter proceeded to ask for a little music by way of dessert. Joseph revenged himself by playing the violin very willingly, and Consuelo, now completely recovered from her agitation of the morning, was about to sing when intelligence was brought that the Count and Baron desired a little music for themselves. It was impossible to refuse, after the generous aid they had received from the two noblemen. Consuelo would have considered any want of complacence, or any excuse either of fatigue or hoarseness, as the basis in gratitude, since, in fact, her voice had already reached the gentleman's ears. She followed Joseph, who was already prepared to take everything which happened in good part, and when they had entered the saloon, where, lighted by a score of wax tapers, the two noblemen were engaged in finishing their last bottle of toquet. It stood near the door, and began to sing the little Italian duets which they had rehearsed on the mountains. Attention, said Consuelo, slyly, to Joseph. Consider that His Excellency the Count is about to examine us as to our proficiency in music. Let us acquit ourselves to his satisfaction. The Count was much flattered by this observation. As for the Baron, he had placed the portrait of his mysterious Dulcemia on the reverse of his plate and was gazing at it without heeding what was going on. Consuelo took care not to display the full powers of her voice. Her pretended sex hardly agreed with her liquid and flute-like accents, and her apparent age did not warrant the expectation of any decided talent. She assumed the hoarse and somewhat worn voice of a young lad who has prematurely injured his tone by singing in the open air. It was an amusement for her to counterfeit in this manner the awkward attempts and rude flourishes which he had so often heard the street singers of Venice practice. But though the parody was excellent, still she could not hide her superior taste, and the duet was sung with such force and originality that the Baron, himself an excellent musician and artist, replaced his portrait in his bosom, raised his head, and ended by applauding vociferously exclaiming that it was the sweetest music he had ever heard. As for Count Holditz, who was full of Fuchs and Ramo and other classic authors, he had less relish for this kind of performance. In his eyes, the Baron was a sort of barbarian, and the two young people intelligent indeed, but requiring his efforts to raise them from the depths of their ignorance." His ruling idea was to form his own artists, and he said in a sententious manner, shaking his head the while, It is not so bad, but there is a great deal to mend. Come, come, we will correct all that. 
He looked upon Joseph and Consuelo in imagination as his already and as forming part of his choir. He then asked Hayden to play the violin, and as the latter had no reason to conceal his abilities, he executed a piece of his own composition to admiration. This time, the Count was highly satisfied. Your position is fixed, said he. You shall be first violin, but you must also practice on the viola and the viol de more. I will teach you the manner of execution. Is his highness the baron also satisfied with my comrade? said Consuela to Trenck, who had relapsed into his reverie. So much so, replied he, that if I make any stay at Vienna, I will have no other master. I will teach you the viol de more, replied the count, and I expect that you will give me the preference. I prefer the violin and this professor, replied the baron, with perfect frankness. He took the violin and played from memory with great purity of tone and expression several passages from the piece which Joseph had just performed. I wish to show you, said he with great modesty, that I am only fit to be your pupil, but that, with attention and docility, I might learn. Consuelo requested him to continue, and he complied without affectation. He had talent, taste, and skill. Hoditz praised his performance beyond measure. It is but a poor thing, replied Trank, for it is my own. I like it, however, inasmuch as it pleased the princess. The count made a hideous grimace to warn him of his imprudence. Trank paid no attention, but, lost in thought, ran the bow over the strings absently. Then, throwing the instrument on the table, he rose and strode up and down the apartment, pressing his hand on his forehead. At last he returned toward the table and said, Good evening, my dear Count. I am obliged to set out ere daybreak. The carriage which I have ordered is to call for me at three. Most probably I shall not see you again till we meet in Vienna. I shall be happy to see you there, to thank you for the pleasure I have received in your company which I never can forget. They pressed each other's hands repeatedly, and as the baron left the apartment, he slipped some pieces of gold into Joseph's hand, saying, This is on account of my future lessons in Vienna. You will find me at the Prussian embassy. He nodded to Consuelo as he passed, while he whispered in her ear, Should I ever find you as drummer or trumpeter in my regiment, we will desert together. Dost understand? Then saluting the Count once more, he left the apartment. End of chapter 73